That is one of them, in case you're wondering. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is our text. Uh, if you just showed up to our church for the first time, you are in for a doozy of a text today. And let me just say this, it will unsettle you, it will hurt you, it is not pretty, but the Bible is real and it's honest about the brokenness in life. And the church is messy and the kingdom of God is messy and families are broken and Jesus is sufficient. It's all true. This is a very difficult text. You'll find out what I mean as we read it together. You know, it was just recently that Ginger Duggar, who you might remember that name, that Duggar name, one of the daughters of the family, the Duggar family, had that show on for a long time called 19 Kids and Counting. Uh, they were a family that did their best to isolate their kids from the world. They dressed very modestly. They were an interesting family. My own little girls used to watch it growing up, and although most of the way they were was odd and unrelatable to us, uh, it was a wholesome show. And it was a cool show. I mean, they had their own fountain drink machine in their industrial kitchen. How cool is that? You could just get whatever you wanted all the time. We were fascinated by the Duggar family. Here's the problem. Ginger's new book reveals more of what we have learned over the years about the Duggar family. Two main thoughts. One, no family is immune from the brokenness and destruction of sin. And we may try to shelter, and we may try to isolate and protect, and we might try to stay away from those people out there but the reality is sin and brokenness is in every family and no family is immune to it. Secondly, here's what we've learned over the years by the brokenness in that family, including sexual abuse. We learned that you cannot shelter your family ultimately from evil because the sin out there is not the problem, it's the sin in my heart that's the problem. And even if I try to isolate my, myself or my family from all those bad, quote unquote, influences, none of that deals with the sin that's in every single human heart. We're gonna see in David's family today, deep brokenness and sin. Even the man after God's own heart cannot deliver himself and his family from his own sin that reaps destruction, the ripple effects of destruction behind. That's what sin does. Now, it's in first, it's in second Samuel rather, chapter 13, that we read this story about one of David's sons named Amnon, who rapes his half-sister Tamar. It's it's like reading a soap opera. It's tragic. Here we go. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. This was a son by another wife. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister, his really his half-sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. 
But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And Jonadab said to, uh, to uh, uh, Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his side and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now, Tamar was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Brothers and sisters in Christ, even this is the very word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. O Holy Spirit, come, we ask, in these moments and be our teacher. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see 
in David's house, and we see in this text, is the devastating ripple effects of sin upon those who are the ones sinning and upon those who are the ones who bear the sin of others. It's a, it's a devastating chapter to read. Well, why is all this happening? Well, to understand what's going on here, you need to flip back just a couple pages to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. After David himself has taken another man's wife and made her his own and then killed that man's, uh, that wife's husband, Uriah, Samuel the prophet has come to David and he says, David, the Lord is going to forgive you for your sin because you've confessed it to the Lord but the consequences of your sin will be so great. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. This sword of judgment upon David's sin is now starting to have the ripple effects upon his family. As we look at this text today, here's what I want you to see, four ideas as we look at the different characters of it. And the first is this, and those points are in your bulletin if you want to look at it. The first is that this is lust, not love. This is lust, not love. Amnon says, I'm in love with my half-sister Tamar. No, Amnon, you're not in love. This bears none of the biblical qualifications of love. You won't find any of the aspect of 1 Corinthians 13 in the way you are pursuing Tamar for your own lustful pleasure. There's nothing in this that resembles the love of our Savior for his bride, the church. No, Tamar, this is, uh, no, Amnon, this is not love for Tamar. This is your lust ready to consume Tamar. Amnon, you don't understand that this is really lust and selfish indulgent at the expense of someone else. Like David and like Adam and Eve in the garden, here is Amnon, and the text says that he desired and he took. Amnon wanted what he wanted no matter the cost no matter the damage, he was consumed by the lust of his heart. And he said, no matter the consequences, no matter the shame, no matter the destruction on myself or on others, I want what I want and I'm going to get what I want. And man, is that scary. And the root of that same sin lies in my heart and your heart. Regardless of what God's word says, I want what I want. And Amnon is not loving Tamar or loving God, he is lusting and fulfilling his selfish indulgence at the expense of Tamar. I wanna to say to you that sexual desire is not the problem. Passionate lust and desire, uh, passionate uh, uh, longing and desire for sex is not the problem here. The problem is when Amnon's lust which goes against the very clear teachings of Scripture, have so captured his heart that he says, I don't care what God says, I want what I want when I want it. 
Sexual desire God has given to us. It's beautiful in the context of marriage. But any other sexual activity outside the the context of man and woman in marriage, God says is evil and it can't be a part of his people and it brings destruction. Whether that is sex before marriage or an adulterous affair during marriage or homosexual sex, it's all evil in the sight of God because it's not confound with, uh, it's not contained within what God has prescribed the beauty, beauty of sex in marriage to be. This is not love. This is lust. And it destroys the person who engages in it, and it destroys the other person who is the recipient or partner in it. And as Amnon does this to Tamar, she cries out, don't be like one of the outrageous fools of Israel. This is going to destroy me, This is going to destroy you. It brings destruction because it's not how God intended it to be. This is lust. This is not love. Secondly, Amnon has a friend named Jonadab. But he's not a friend. He's a fool, not a friend. I have this uh, buddy in high school. His name was John Zimmer. He was from Wisconsin and he was a crazy good friend to me. And he was fearless. And uh, I I probably have told you this story before, but in high school, we learned that you could go up past Clemson to the uh, Lake Kiwi. There's this bridge on Highway 11, and you could jump off into the the lake, which was this sort of river and lake coming together. And I had heard about it, and I had heard it was amazing. So I got in the car one day with John, and I said, let's go. And we walked out to the edge of this bridge, and I said, hey, John, I think this is where you're supposed to jump. Why don't you do it and uh, make sure... And John, who doesn't have as much sense uh, as he should, listens to me. I wasn't a good friend. John jumps over the bridge, and I hear this, and he's like, it's okay, you're fine, come on. That's not a good friend. This is Jonadab here. Jonadab's going, hey, Amnon, you want this woman? I got a strategy for you. He was a conniving, scheming shrewd person but he was a fool there's no biblical wisdom here let me say it this way in that moment when Amnon was bent on uh, pursuing the passionate lust of his heart what he needed the most in that moment was a true friend who would step into him and say listen Your sexual desire is not wrong, but how you intend to follow through with your sexual desire, it's against God. It's not okay. You're going to destroy yourself. Don't do it. Instead, he gets somebody who helps him devise a plan to pursue his own lust, his own destruction, and in the destruction of Tamar. He should have said, Amnon, you know God's law. You know Leviticus 18. You, you are not permitted with, to have any sexual relations outside of marriage. And in particular, you may not have any sexual relations with someone of your own household. This means your half-sister. This is out of bounds. Don't do it. It really is true, teenagers. When people say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. 
What we all desperately need is a friend, a godly friend, a wise friend who will not let us destroy ourselves, but has the love and courage to step in and say, don't do it. What we all need is a true friend, not a fool. When you couple the selfish, sinful, lustful desires of your heart with bad friends, you're in big trouble. What Amnon needed was a friend, not a fool, to help him destroy himself. Thirdly, poor Tamar. You just feel like when you read this text, you feel your heart being ripped out of your chest at the abuse that she suffers. This is abuse of power, and this is sexual abuse. This is the king's son under the king's roof, and he has the power of the king behind him, and he takes what he wants at her expense, and she's a victim. She didn't deserve this. She didn't dress a certain way. She's not the problem. It's not her fault. She's a victim here. She is violated, not valued. Sweet Tamar, her father comes to her. She's beautiful, she's kind, she's giving, she's obedient, she's selfless, and her father says, make some food for your brother. She does it. But he's not going to take her food, he's going to take advantage of her. Oh, Tamar, her purity violated, her promising future destroyed. The text says to us that she remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. How heartbreaking. If you don't know the name Diane Langberg, you need to know who she is. You need to read her books. One of her books called Suffering and the Heart of God was so helpful for me. Another one called Redeeming Power, dealing with abuse and, uh, in the church You read those two books and you will understand how deeply embedded in our society and even in the church abuse of power or sexual abuse really is. Some statistics that Diane Langberg gives. A sexual assault occurs every two minutes in the United States. One of five women have reportedly been raped in the United States, one of five. 44% of these are under the age of 18, and 93% of these know the one who abused or raped them. Those are the statistics, just some of the statistics. It rips your heart out of your chest. And this line, all her promise has been taken from her, and then verse 13 she says, as for me, Amnon, Where could I carry my shame? He has used her, he has abused her, and now, to make matters worse, he has thrown her out of the house. Get this, the text in Hebrew says, get this out of here. He doesn't even call her by her name or a woman. He says, get this out of here. His own lust has consumed him to act in in an abusive way on her, And then he so detests her as the victim of his lust and what he has done that he hates her as much as he thought he loved her, if not more. 
and it's not her fault. The text says that he bolted the door after her. She begged him, go to the king. Maybe he'll let us marry, but since you violated me this way, don't ruin my future completely. We don't know what David would have done, but maybe David's heart here would have been one to just go ahead and let them be married. But she's grasping for straws. She's desperate. She even comes up with this plan, but he will not do it. He rapes her, he violates her, and he throws her out like discarded trash, and she will bear these scars and shame forever in some sense, her dreams having been shattered. And let me just say, to all of us who want to toy in sexual sin, this is what happens. Sexual activity outside of the way that God has ordained it in Scripture brings destruction on us and on everyone else. And the ripple effects go on and on and on. Fourthly, and as bad as everything that's gone on here, what we see in the life of David is failure, not faithfulness. David in this way is a failure. He's not faithful. For two reasons in particular. Because his own sin has now been visited on his sons. Where would Amnon come up with the audacity, the arrogance to say, hey, I see a woman, she's outside the bounds, this is evil in the sight of God, this will destroy her, but I don't care because I know what I want. Oh, I know where he learned that from David, who did the same thing with Bathsheba and killed her husband. And now, like father, like son, here is Amnon thinking he's entitled to something he's just not entitled to. And David's own failure is seen in this way. You know, I get so mad at my kids and their sin. Uh, I got bad kids. When I, I see their sin, it makes me so mad at them. Until the Holy Spirit... When I'm angry at their sin, and I'm sometimes handling it in a wrong way, just gently nudges and reminds me, hey, John, there's not one sin that you see in your bad kids that hasn't first had root in your own heart. You've just learned how to be more refined in your sin. You're just smarter with it. You know how to handle it better. And then I'm cut to the heart and I realize the sin and judgment I place on my, the, the, the judgment I place on my kids for their sin is so deeply rooted in my own heart. Our kids learn from us, don't they? Sobering. The second way in which David is a failure here is in his injustice and failure to act. He sweeps it under the rug. He ignores it. No, the text says David gets really angry. Well, that's step one, David, of about five steps. David failed in that moment to realize, I am her father and I am the king. And it is my job to care for her and defend her and protect her. And it is also my job as the king to enact justice. Why didn't he? We don't know for sure, but the Septuagint, if you look at the bottom of your ESV Bible, if you look at the, the little footnote there, it says this comment. 
in the, in the Masoretic text, uh, oh, no, I'm on the wrong page. Um, this footnote. In the Septuagint, in a Dead Sea Scroll, it adds these words, but he, David, would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since Amnon was his firstborn. Now, we don't know if this is in the original text, but here's what we do know. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this is in there, which means at the very least, everybody knew that this was the common thought that David refuses to act and to bring justice because of his love for his firstborn, Amnon. And what is so evil here is that David, instead of acting, sweeps this under the rug and appears to ignore it. And it's wicked. And here's what I want us to know and, and, and agree upon again. This happened in the kingdom of David and it happened in the household of David, but it cannot happen in the kingdom of Christ and it cannot happen in the household of Christ. I'm so thankful for the growth we have seen in the church over the last 20 years in this and in this church as well. As far as I know, we have dealt and want to deal seriously with abuse and sexual sin. We want to believe the victim. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt and we want to go to their defense and we want to act. We do not want to sweep it under the rub. And we would all tell you as elders, as pastors, where we've sinned in this way, we regret it tremendously. And where we've gotten it right, we just want to keep getting it right over and over and over and over. We must be in a church, a place where we defend the victim. David failed in this way. I'm so thankful for the PCA's paper that they came out with. You should read it on, on abuse in the church and how the PCA wants to get better and better at being faithful in this way. David blows it. It may have happened in the kingdom of David. It may have happened in the household of David, but it cannot happen in the kingdom of Christ, and it cannot happen in the household of God. We want to be faithful in this way. Now listen, this is dark. This is heavy. Is there good news somewhere here? Is, is the gospel present in this text? I mean, I don't see it anywhere. In fact, you don't even see the name of God in this text. He's not even mentioned. What do we do? I think the gospel is in this text in three ways that gives us hope. First, we have to understand that had Amnon repented of his sin, God would have forgiven him. We have our sins in society that we think are respectable. This isn't one of them. But we know that there is no sin that puts someone out of the place where God can forgive them. There's no sin that's greater than God's grace. Had Amnon, and we have no indication that he ever repents, but had he confessed this sin, this sexual sin and this abuse, God would have forgiven him, just like God forgave his father David for his horrible sin. God is a God of grace, and he forgives even the most dreadful, devastating of sins. That hymn we sing, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. 
There is no sin that you have committed that God will not forgive you for. His mercy is greater than even our grossest sin. Secondly, this text makes us long for another king. Is there a king that would exercise justice and mercy? Is there a king who is loving to his children but doesn't do so at the expense of his justice? Oh yeah, there is one. This text makes us realize, oh no, David, the man after God's own heart, the great King David, he's a failure in the way he handles these things in his own sin. But David's just a foreshadowing of the greater David, great David's greater son who came in the flesh and in his life, death, and resurrection, took all the sin of mankind upon himself, and he satisfied perfectly justice, wrath, and mercy and love, not at the expense of one or the other. This text makes us cry out for a king who will once and for all deal with evil and abuse. If you're a victim of sexual abuse today, your King Jesus has come and is coming and he does not sweep it under the rug. He deals with it. And he gave his own life for it and hell itself smells like the justice of God against the grossest sin. God will not turn a blind eye to your pain and suffering. He came for that very reason in the purpose, in the person of Christ. He will not mistreat us, this king. He will not abuse us, this king. He truly loves us, this king. This king has come and he is coming again. Thirdly, what we see that is gracious in this text is to realize that when Tamar walked out of that place that day, and we know from Egyptian carvings that when someone placed their head over their heads in this way, it was symbolizing captivity. So Tamar throws ashes on her. She rips her virgin's robe that says, I'm an eligible child of the king and I'm ready to be married when the right man comes along. It's all been taken from her. It's all been violated. And she comes out of there with her hands on her head saying, I'm a captive. I'm living in captivity to the shame and oppression of what this person has done to me and I will carry these scars the rest of my life. We're reminded that as she tore her robes, Jesus Christ himself said, I give you new robes, robes of royalty. I clothe you in my righteousness. Tamar, this sin no longer has to define you. Yes, you're a victim. Yes, it's not your fault, but you can release this because your identity is not in how you've been sinned against. Your identity is in the forgiveness and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who has declared you are royalty no matter what somebody has done to you. She's received the robes of Jesus. It's dark, brothers and sisters, but there's hope here. What I want us to do as we close before we, in God's beautiful mercy, go to the Lord's Supper together is I want us to sing this song by Andrew Peterson called, uh, Is He Worthy? Because here's why. In Revelation chapter five, 
There's this vision that John has, and he sees this scroll, and it's bound by seven seals, and he, and he cries out, is anyone worthy to unroll this scroll? Now, what's in the scroll? Well, we don't know for sure, but in the context, commentators tell us that in that scroll is the unrolling of the judgment of God and the victory of Christ and the final death of sin and evil and oppression and, and, and abuse and shame, that, that somebody's coming and the end of history is coming and this king is worthy to unwrap the scroll because he's the lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the earth. And this king, has come to do something about our sin and shame and brokenness. And we can take it all to him because he's going to make it right. Is there anyone worthy? There is one. Let's sing about him now. Stand to your feet, please.